Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Thanks for joining us on the first podcast of 2018. I hope your holidays went well and you had a great time with friends and family. And of course, Happy New Year. You may be on a plane to or from J.P. Morgan, or perhaps you're walking down the streets of San Francisco. I hope uh, if you are going or you're coming from the event that you will have or had a, uh, a successful week. And uh, if you have any insights to share, I'm not able to make the trip this year. I'd love to hear uh, what you heard. So please shoot me an email, tom at healthogy.com, or you can uh, reach me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Again, we'd love to uh, hear what uh, you heard about the MedTech world at, uh, at J.P. Morgan. Today, we're going to talk about, I think, one of the uh, hotter companies in MedTech, Fractal Laboratories. Our guest today is Harith Rajagopalan, who is the CEO and founder, co-founder of the company. And uh, Fractal had a good year last year. <laughs> They've made some clinical progress, which we'll discuss in the podcast. And they also closed on a $44 million Series D round and brought in some uh, interesting new investors, including GV, Google, and uh, True Ventures, and IDO Investments, as well as a mysterious undisclosed investor. And I'll ask Harith about that investor's identity, and we'll see uh, we'll see what that gets us. But uh, in, for, Harith is an, an interesting guy in uh, that he is a, an MD, and he clearly came into starting Fractal, um, I think, from that medical perspective. But uh, now he is uh, leading a sizable med tech startup and raising money from all these uh, these really important investors and noted investors. And I wanted to talk to him, and I did talk to him, about how much time fundraising takes. Is it is it more than perhaps he thought it would be going into running a med tech startup? And uh, we talked a bit about what his approach is. Uh, he gave some advice to other CEOs who are raising money. And uh, I, think, uh, I think you'll find that part of the conversation helpful. I also talked a bit about building the right board. Uh, they uh, brought on board a couple of new members to their board of directors, uh, made that announcement in November, one of whom was uh, Senator William Bradley, who um, I'm a fan of, and it was interesting to see him involved in a med tech like Fractal. So talked a bit about uh, the, uh, the building of a board and uh, discussed the importance of um, just, just the, the board of directors working well with the scientific advisory board. So in addition to uh, Senator Bradley, Dr. John Amatruda also came on board and uh, to the board of directors. So, and sorry, I keep saying a board in board. It's a lot of board, but it's a, it's a, it's a great time for Fractal and we'll get into uh, all of those moving parts. That's, uh, that's helping the story move forward. We'll also get an update on Fractal's clinical progress, as I suggested. And uh, he also uh, talks a bit about how Fractal is engaging with the uh, diabetes patient community. So it's a, it's a great conversation. I always enjoy talking to Harith, and I, I hope you uh, enjoy this interview. Before I let you go, though, I did want to remind you that the MedTech Conference will be happening on May 31st in Minneapolis, so please do save that date. Now let's get into this conversation with Harith Rajagopalan of Fractal. Harith Rajagopalan, welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. 
Thanks, Tom. Glad to be back. So we in MedTech uh, are, are saved from having to talk about things like unicorns, which is both good and bad. <laughs> the unicorns obviously indicate there's a great deal of value in the company, but there's op- uh, often a great deal of hype that maybe uh, suggests the value isn't worth it. But uh, we do have in MedTech exciting stories like Fractal, which I think is really, and we've talked about this before, I see it as one of those companies that uh, that really kind of captures the the essence of MedTech. It really gets people excited about the potential of, of technologies like yours. I do want to get into, into your technology and where you are clinically. But the news of the day really has been your financing, and I gave the details of it uh, in the introduction of the podcast. So we don't need to go through the particulars, but... I'm curious, going into to starting a company like this, how much time did you actually think you'd be dedicating to fundraising and to working with investors? Did, did you initially sort of see that as something else you would have to do? And is it actually just something else you would have to do, or, or is it a main part of, of running a, a medtech startup? It is one of the three or four core functions of being the CEO of a startup sure. after all, Tom, right? So you got to be able to define a clear vision. You got to be able to recruit and retain a extraordinarily talented group of individuals who can execute against that vision together. But third, you know, you and you alone have to make sure that you have enough cash in the bank to achieve your objectives. And so I, I while there are other important roles of a CEO than those three, those three certainly come to the top of mind. And therefore, uh, spending about a third on each, roughly, uh, is probably a good way to think about it. But you don't spend all a third every day on each. Mm -hmm. There are times when um, certain of those require much more effort than others. And oftentimes, as you can probably sort of imagine, um, time spent really heavily focused on one or another is time that then needs to be made up for by being more focused on on the, the ones that were neglected for some period of time. And I've sort of seen that over the course of the company's life now. We've been doing this for about six years. And so, you know, you can sort of see how I go through waves in terms of what becomes the main focus of my energy and attention and then what gets less attention at that time and then how that needs to be fixed in order to be able to make sure that we can continue to move the program forward. Mm-hmm. And in, in, let's talk a little bit about this particular financing. It was, it was led by an undisclosed new investor and joined by new investors, uh, GV, True Ventures, and, and IDO Investments. Uh, what goes behind not disclosing uh, a, a new investor? <clears throat> can you give us any, I guess I'll ask, can you give us any details on the investor at all? And I'm guessing you'll say, no, I can't. But I'm wondering, what are the sensitivities that go around uh, bringing an investor who wants to be part of your story, but doesn't want to be identified? And it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, from my perspective, I, I can't share anything about our new investor, as I'm sure you surmised. But what I can say is that it's really important to us to be able to find partners who have the ability to um, see the same vision that we see, the enthusiasm and excitement for the not only that vision, but the strategy that we're employing. And we've been particularly lucky to be able to bring to our company a set of investors who have a long-term vision for 
the types of changes that they'd like to see or feel are necessary to be seen in healthcare and see that fractal fits within that vision. And so that's, that is absolutely true for our new lead, um, as well as for the other folks who have uh, joined in on that financing end, the um, inv individuals and investors who have been in prior, prior financings who continue to participate in our financing rounds. We've been very fortunate in that regard. What makes an investor uh, not want to be disclosed, I think, really boils down to um, boils down to what where they think um, their needs are with respect to their investment thesis. And if they, um, in many, I think for some, uh, being disclosed is an opportunity to show showcase their participation in financing and companies. And I think for others, there isn't a, there isn't a such a perceived need to manifest that because they're able to find companies that they'd like to invest in in other means. And I would say this probably fits into that category without, I, I know that's vague, but nevertheless, I think that's sort of pretty core to sure. the truth. No, I, I went into the question knowing we weren't going to get the answer, but I'm always, I'm curious as to uh, I know how, <laughs> how that's decided. And, uh, and, uh, and I understand there are sensitivities when strategics get involved and things like that, but I've never really had the opportunity to ask that question before. So in addition to that undisclosed new investor, and we won't talk about that entity anymore, so you can relax. <laughs> I want to talk about your, your identified investors. I mean, you've got uh, such a great roster. You've got Domain, you've got Bessner, you've got Mithril, you've got Emergent, Deerfield, such big names. Um, how, how do you go about, how difficult is it for a CEO to, sort of, a CEO to, to manage uh, such a, um, I don't want to overstate the, 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 the the high profile of, of the Senate syndicate, but it's a high profile syndicate. Is it difficult to, to, when you have so many big players involved in one investment, is it difficult to kind of manage those relationships? Because often we see in, in MedTech, there'll be one massive investor and, uh, and then uh -huh. some smaller investors. But in this case, you've got uh, the 27 Yankees here. You've got a, a pretty formidable lineup. So it's great to have that capital, but is there, are there any challenges to having so many uh, high profile investors behind you? It's an interesting question. I've actually never thought about it in that way. This is the only company I've ever run, and so therefore I don't I don't really know anything differently. Uh, I I can say that I feel really I, I I feel really fortunate to have the investors that we have. I feel fortunate that we've been able to partner selectively with folks who are um, enthusiastic and supportive and simultaneously. Um, have is share the same hopes and dreams and aspirations that we do, but also um, have the capacity to help us take that, take those aspirations and then turn them into concrete plans that we're executing against. I think that we, everyone recognizes that type two diabetes is both a massive opportunity and a, a really fundamental problem that needs to be fixed. And I think that our investors see that the approach that we're taking towards type 2 diabetes and to NASH has real merit and continues to show promise. And, and so long as that, that's the case, I think the, the working with our investors has been great. Now, if, we, um, if, if I think about it, I don't know that there's anything that particularly pertains to the number of investors other than the fact that 
I, I probably spend more time talking to my investors um, than I than I would if I had a smaller group. But um, but I think that the quality of different voices around the table, the experiences that they bring, the um, environment that they are experiencing, and then the feedback that I get from all of that is on the net extraordinarily beneficial. And, and along with the investors uh, and their capital comes their influence and, and their, their enrollment in, in the board of directors. I know not everyone has a seat at the table. Uh, you've got uh, some great names up there. Chris Gabrielli from Bessemer, who we've known for a long time. Brian Dovey from Domain. You've recently added uh, former Senator Bill Bradley and uh, John Amatruda from uh, from Yale University. What what would Bill Bradley is an interesting addition, uh, and it's not something you necessarily see on a med tech uh, company at this time. Perhaps when they're when they're have gone public or maybe planning to go public. But what? How did you connect with Bill Bradley, and what does what does he bring to the board? I'm I'm a huge fan of his. I voted for him in in the primaries in 2000. So. Very interesting to see him be part of your story. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk about Dr. Amatruda as well. And we will. But yes, we will. Bill Bradley. Yeah, and but Bill Bradley is um, was introduced to me through the folks at Mithril through Ajay Royan, one of our board members, and I had a chance to get to know him uh, over the course of um, the early part of 2017. And what I what really impressed upon me is that. Because of his experiences in his sort of post-NBA life, um, but also because of the prominence that he had from a very early point in his career. I mean, he was he was the subject of a New Yorker article when he was a college student. He's thought really hard about how to affect change in the world and then how to communicate that change in a way that is understandable acceptable and popular across a broad swath of, of the population. And uh, one of the things that he brings and, and he helps me with a lot is that for a medical device, a therapeutic medical device to be successful in treating type two diabetes at scale is going to require the shaping of the market in a pretty considerable way. But it starts with the promise and potential that we bring to really improve the lives of patients. And we believe that patients will see that and, um, and recognize that as among the earliest of all of the different stakeholders in the marketplace. The idea that there's something wrong in your gut that is potentially fixable in a safe and effective and scalable manner that can change the tra- that has a potential to change the trajectory of this disease that has come to define your life we think is an extremely attractive prospect for patients it's what a device can bring a therapeutic medical device can bring that a drug cannot and how do you shape the opinion of all of the stakeholders in a way that gets people to begin to recognize that when inertia would argue against it for so many different reasons. And how do you talk to people at a, um, at the right time and with the right language that gets people to begin to see for themselves the promise and potential that this brings 
um, you know, something that actually someone with Bill's background and experience is uniquely qualified to help us with. The second thing that he brings, which is sort of more prosaic, but also extremely valuable, is a, a strong sense for how to think about organizational development, how to um, think about how I how we build the organization over time uh, and what the needs are and how we interface with external parties. Those are some of the virtues that Bill Bradley helps with. And, and let's, John, uh, yeah, let's maybe, get into John Amatruda. No, that's that, I do want to get into, into John Amatruda. We will vote this answer. But I'm, in, in answering this question, I'm curious, how much role do you have as a CEO in sort of in, in assembling the, your, your board of directors? And do you, what do you really look for in additions to the board? Are you really trying to complement your uh, skill sets to, to, to fill holes in, in, in weaknesses? I wonder how much thought goes into building on a board. And, but before we get into that, I would love to hear about John and Matruda's in, uh, involvement as well. Sure. Well, I'll talk about John and then I'll talk about how they all fit together, perhaps, uh, because uh, Dr. Amatruda is uh, is a endocrinologist. He's a uh, practicing physician. He was a franchise head of diabetes and metabolism at Merck for many years and therefore brings a perspective of a clinician, of a scientist, and of a drug de developer. In fact, he led the discovery and he led the development of Genuvia, which is one of the most successful brands in type 2 diabetes in all time. So there's actually a remarkably easy way to understand why Dr. Amatruda is a valuable member of the board. It's that he really understands the space, he understands the patients, he understands the clinical science and the basic science. And what I love most about it is that John was a tremendous skeptic when he was first introduced to the company. Really? The idea that you would ablate the duodenum as a treatment to address a root cause of type 2 diabetes sounds crazy on the face of it <laughs> and certainly is you know, not the mainstream thinking of how we understand the disease. But as John, with, an, with his open-minded way, was able to work himself through the scientific rationale, the plausible mechanistic basis for why this makes sense, and then pass it through the prism of his own experience as a developer of drugs for diabetes, as someone who studied diabetes pathophysiology for his entire career, and who takes care of patients, I think he began to see that this actually makes really good sense. It's scientifically sound. It is something that patients could really benefit from, and it fills an important gap that you don't see being filled with pharmacology in type 2 diabetes today. So I think that the benefit that he brings to the board is all of that experience and know-how, but also the credible clinical and regulatory success of having brought drugs to market in metabolic disease and all of the work and specific, you know, nitty gritty detail required in order to make that happen so so did your con convincing of him or, or or his the process that he went through to, to accept what fractal is is uh trying to do did that come as a part of his recruitment to the board or have you been engaged with him over the years and and he sort of he sort of saw that what you were trying to do and then you approached him up about being on the board i wonder how that came together well he's been a member of our scientific advisory board for 
quite some time now. And so he's gotten to know Fractal. So he, he had, there was a window of time when he had to first convince himself that this made sense as a pursuit scientifically. And then he joined our scientific advisory board through which he had an opportunity to see how our data are maturing, how our basic scientific work has matured and how this begins to parlay itself into a cogent thesis for regulatory approval as well as commercial um, success. And it was sort of through that progress that I saw that there would be a, be a tremendous asset to build a bridge between our scientific advisory board and our board of directors so that they could both know how the other group was approaching the problem and the opportunities that we see and could be working in relative alignment with one another in that regard. Not that when I say relative alignment, it's like it's, it's better for the scientific advisory board to understand what the board of directors is seeing as problems and opportunities and vice versa. It's going to help both of them be helpful to their company in their own way a little bit more effectively. Fascinating. And, and just following up on my second part of the question before, which I probably could just use, I could distill a little better. How do you use this board? How, do you, how do you utilize their skill sets, their expertise, uh, and, and how do they complement what you're able to do as, as CEO? Well, I, I feel like I've got um, an extraordinary group of um, accomplished, thoughtful, and um, strategic minds to help me work through um, the, 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 the sort of our strategy and the, the challenges that we face. And so um, they each bring something different. When you bring on an, a new investor and that, that investor, you part of what you're doing is you're choosing an investor because of the capital that they can deploy to the company. But part of what you're doing is interviewing them much as they are interviewing you for how they could be helpful to you. So, and how they can be helpful to you in thinking about the business and thinking about the strategic choices in front of us. And uh, I think that the investor group that we have have been extremely helpful in that regard, but also helpful in based on the experience and other companies in which they've invested in thinking about risk mitigation strategies and, you know, the, the appropriate balance between focus of effort and diversification of opportunity and the appropriate approach towards financing efforts within different climates and different um, sort of cycles. All of that stuff's been extremely helpful. And then you could probably then imagine from that how having an Alan Will, who's been an operating executive at several successful medical device companies through from early stage conception all the way through to commercialization and ultimate exit to um, to acquisition, as well as his past experience as a venture capital investor while he was at Split Rock Ventures and company formation and company guidance in, in those roles, how that can pair with the type of inexperience that experience that the Dr. Amatruda can bring where he's where he's got deep diabetes and metabolism experience has never done anything in device before but really really understands the disease state and the patient's 
challenges and where Fractal can fit in, um, and, and how the two of them could learn from and benefit from one another, but how I get to benefit from the best thinking of a diverse group of individuals. And just final question about the fundraising. I want to get into the fun stuff about the technology. Uh, but did you, do you recall ever receiving good advice about raising funds? And uh, if so, what was it? Or if, you, if not, what advice do you have if you were talking to someone else who was starting a company uh, about raising money in the medtech world? My advice is to really understand the problem in crystal clear detail that you're trying to solve. And to make sure in your own mind that you have a unique approach that's valid and valuable to addressing that very specific problem. And I think that if you're able to do those two things um, and, then, and then explain in a, in a very compelling story how they match up. I, I think you've got, you've got a compelling opportunity to, and I, and you will be able to get that funded. You know, oftentimes the it's, it's, it's as simple as not doing one of those two things. Well, as an example, either, um, as an, I'll give you sort of two examples, you've got a compelling technology. It's an extremely, um, it, it, you know, it's extremely cool and it's innovative and novel but you haven't really sorted out what problem in the marketplace it solves and how you've satisfied the needs of all of the different stakeholders that are necessary for a technology for this new technology to actually pass through the clinical regulatory reimbursement gauntlets for ultimate commercial success on the other hand there's a lot of there's a lot of problems that we could do a better job in solving. Open up the newspaper and read, for instance, as just taking something from the top of my mind, how our lifespans are being reduced because of the opioid crisis, largely because of the opioid crisis. And you say, what? that's an important problem. Now, do I understand that problem well enough to pair it with a solution that really fixes it and fixes the fundamental aspect of what that problem Manifest that, which is not necessarily self-evident on the face of it, right? I don't think it's necessarily self-evident to most on the face of it that in type 2 diabetes, we've asymptotically reached the limit of what drugs and lifestyle interventions are going to do to improve the quality of outcomes in the real world. Right. I don't think that that's necessarily something that's been that's self-evident unless you take time to really try to think hard about that. And you see that we have 50 drugs that have been approved and yet outcomes are worsening. So what are we going to do differently now in order to try to improve outcomes? And how do we how does that how is that solution truly going to meet all of the needs of all of the different stakeholders? That's great. That's great advice. I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great piece of advice right there. And and I saw the news about the, the declining uh, life expectancy as well, and that's sincerely troubling. But uh, let's let's slip into the uh, into the fun part. You've got the the capital now to do the job you want to do. How will the capital be used uh, going forward? Where are you with uh, Revita and clinical testing? Can you give us an update on on uh, on what you're doing? 
Sure. So I'm happy to do that. Uh, I'll tell you where we've been and I'll tell you where we're going. So we have um, we have just completed our second major trial, which is the Revita One study. When I say completed, it's in fall. It's in follow up. We're no longer enrolling that study. And we have a complete one year data set, which we are preparing for um, for clinical communications in the first half of 2018, uh, both abstracts at, or posters at conferences, as well as manuscript that's, that we're now drafting. And we, we come out of Revita 1 with you know a new block of learning relative to our first in human study, which I think you and I talked about last time we, we chatted, which is that uh, that we've we've deployed the technology to several major European centers and have been fortunate to see a very favorable safety and tolerability profile. And now that we have sort of nearly 50 patients and one year of follow-up from that study, we see that the that there's increasing clarity on the mechanism of the technology, its effectiveness, and its durability through one year of follow-up so far. So it's kind of remarkable, right, that you have this single-point outpatient intervention from which patients fully appear to fully heal within a matter of weeks, and yet there's a durable, apparently durable metabolic benefit that's sustained through one year of follow-up. And we don't yet know how long exactly this lasts, but if you sort of look at the trend line between months three, six, and 12, it looks really good. So now we've moved into a randomized, double-blinded, sham-controlled study, which is we're calling Revita 2, which is enrolling at 10 centers across mostly Europe and also with a single center in South America. And in that study, we aim to cement the lessons that we've learned from our first study and our Revita 1 study by um, demonstrating safety and effectiveness in a randomized, double-blinded, and sham-controlled manner. That study has been informed by very productive conversations we've had with the FDA, as well as looking at predicates for what a pivotal trial would be expected to look like in the United States. And so a key goal is to um, demonstrate the safety and effectiveness, but then also to tighten our confidence intervals around um, the execution of the pivotal study, which would follow Revita 2. So how far will the capital you've raised and have raised in the past, how, well, what will that get you to? Yeah, so that we, the, the, that capital gets us well into, uh, well past this Revita 2 study mm -hmm. and um, into um, our, in, in, into 2019, and at which point we expect to be um, advancing, sort of transitioning into other regulatory and OU outside and, and commercial activities outside the United States. Have you initiated uh, conversations with the, with the FDA yet? And if so, what what form are those taking? You know, we have um, we've had very productive conversations with them, and we we are focused now on executing the Revita two study, which we think will be an important milestone to give us confidence in sort of the sham controlled effectiveness of the therapy in a population of patients with poorly controlled diabetes. And we think it's the study that will give us confidence that we can um, subsequently do the pivotal trial 
um, and achieve favorable results. Terrific. And final question. Uh, this is uh, obviously a a patient population that's that's um, heavily involved in, in their own treatment. They're they're engaged. They're looking for new technologies, new ways to to, to treat their their disease. Have they been tracking you? Have you been tracking them? Have you been reaching out to the the diabetes community and, and keeping them abreast of what you're doing, or or do you have to maintain some some distance and uh, and, and guess not not communicate directly with them? What is your relationship like with both the, the physicians who are currently treating this, but the patients as well? Well, you know, there's nothing I would like more actually than to engage more with patients and to hear their stories and understand how we can most be helpful to patients. At the end of the day, we have a, um, we're all in this industry because we believe that the work that we're doing has the opportunity to improve patients' lives, you know, period, end of story. And so if you, um, with that in mind, uh, having a better understanding of patients and their journeys through their disease and being able to be able to to being able to um, develop the technology and the evidence behind that technology in a way that matches what patients are hoping for in the treatment of their disease uh, is critical to be able to talk to patients. Uh, at the same time, uh, you can't be um, you can't be overly aggressive about what you say or what you claim or what you. Um, what you believe you're going to be bringing. Uh, I think it's important to be li- actively listening. So that's what I spend a lot of my time trying to do is actively listening to people with type 2 diabetes and their experiences with their disease and what they're hoping for. And we do that in a variety of different ways. And I, yet we don't have formal engagement with societies per se because it's a bit early for that. Sure. How, how do you listen to them? Do you, do you have coffees with them? Do you just read the uh, read the websites what's what's the how do you hear directly from the patients i'm curious it's you know what it's actually not hard i mean there it's hard to it's actually hard to find people whose lives are not touched by type 2 diabetes in one way or another and my father had type 2 diabetes my uncle had type 2 diabetes you know it's very prevalent in the um, Indian community as well as in uh, Chinese and Middle Easterners, particularly how much higher rates in those communities than in the U.S. We do it by talking to patients and talking to the physicians who are caring for patients in our clinical trials. And we do it um, by by engaging with, um, with um, some patient groups, uh, mainly in Europe, um, through activities related to our clinical trials, such as Diabetes UK um, and other groups like it, wherein patients are engaged and um, enthusiastic to share their thoughts about their experiences with their disease and uh, what they'd like to see in a treatment. Well, I, I obviously am a fan of the, the fractal story, and I always appreciate your thoughtful responses to my questions. So thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks, Tom. All right, we'll wrap it up there, folks. Thank you, Harith Rajagopalan, for joining us on the first podcast of 2018. Thank you, all of our MedTech Talk podcast listeners, for joining us. We had a great year in 2017. We look forward to building on our success in 2018, and we cannot do it without you. So if you wouldn't mind telling your friends about the MedTech Talk podcast, that's a big help. Give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to the podcast. That helps other folks find this fine podcast. Finally, once again, shoot me an email or reach me out, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Tom at Healthogy.com. 
Healthigy is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and the MedTech Conference, which is happening on May 31st in Minneapolis. So lots of ways to help. We appreciate your support and we look forward to having your company in 2018. Tune in next week. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the MedTech Talk podcast.